you can go ahead and have a seat. Here at Church of the Cross, we have now been working through the Gospel of John, the fourth book of the New Testament, for about five months since right after Easter. At this juncture, I thought it might be fruitful, again, to highlight two of the primary reasons it is that we are doing this, doing this sermon series, and they are really quite simple. The first reason, simply put, is that we would fall in love more with Jesus, that through the gospel, we would be confronted again with the beauty, the wonder, the preeminence of Jesus for the first time or yet again. We, as a community, want to be a people marked by the adoration of Jesus. Love for Jesus is the animating principle behind what we're called to do and to be as a church. We love Jesus, so we seek to obey him. We adore Jesus, and that animates our lives, our life together. I desire for you, for us, to see, to know, and to love Jesus. Related to this, the second reason is that we might increase in faith, in our trust in Jesus. The Gospel of John presents Jesus as provoking a decision, often dividing people among those who encounter him. People are divided by the revelation, the actions, the words of Jesus. We're seeing this up close in the texts in John 6, 7, and 8. Jesus is saying things that cause some people to draw near to put their trust in him, but other people not seeing him clearly to take a step back, walk away. In that, I believe there is an invitation for us to step forward in faith, to increase our conviction, our lived allegiance, our trust in Jesus, that we might grow to more fully be a community of faith. These two elements, the wonder and beauty of Jesus, the possibility of greater adoration, as well as this stark binary inviting us in but potentially making us uncomfortable, are both at play in our passage from John 8. Following immediately on from the text that Mother Sarah looked at with us last week, our passage this morning begins with Jesus addressing those Jews who had believed him, as verse 31 specifies. And you might think, with that beginning, that this would be an easier, more accommodating exchange in comparison to some of the hard, even offensive things and interactions Jesus has been having. You would be wrong to think that. Jesus, the Word made flesh in our passage today, continues to press to challenge his hearers, to challenge us. But in that challenge, there is great and hopeful invitation, and there is much to inspire our adoration. As we explore the passage a little, I'd like to group our thinking around two headings. First, zero-sum sin. And second, in the house of freedom. The beginnings of the American Civil War provoked an important question for the abolitionist movement in the United States. At the center of this question, the beginning of the Civil War, was the person of Frederick Douglass. And the question crystallized around how willing the side of abolition and the northern states fighting on behalf of their cause should be to negotiate, to compromise with the southern states on the side of slavery for the sake of the whole nation, to bring about a more speedy end of the war's bloodshed, the argument went, something less than total victory, absolute surrender by the South should be pursued should be open to compromise, even if that meant preserving 
the unjust institution and the practice of slavery in some way. More limited, of course, but tolerated for the sake of peace. While this argument had much support, especially among politicians, especially as the specter of the full and lengthy war began to take shape, this argument held no water for Douglas. He did not give it the time of day. His position was that the war on the side of righteousness must be prosecuted to the end, to the hilt. No compromise, no acceptance of anything other than the total eradication of the unjust, dehumanizing institutions he had escaped from himself. For this position, which Douglas articulated passionately, consistently, he was branded an extremist, a fanatic, a danger. That historical episode has been on my mind ever since I first heard of it as illustrative of certain spiritual truths. For us, there can be something exemplary about not getting carried away, about avoiding too much enthusiasm or excitement. Often when it comes to spiritual matters, matters of faith, I once heard a priest say that the 11th commandment for Anglicans is thou shall not be tacky. <laughs> Don't look uncool or uncouth, act like you've been there before, everything peaceful and in good order, right? I don't mean to be too hard on such a perspective, though it's at odds with my Pentecostal upbringing. But notions of propriety, of a certain peacefulness, do seem to conflict with Jesus' clear words here regarding sin and its impossibility for his disciples. Verse 31, if you hold to my teaching, literally, remain in my word, you are really, truly my disciples. In verse 34, most starkly, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. These are zero-sum statements. They're an invitation to move from one realm to another, from slavery into freedom. There is no going halfway. I don't know about you, but I find myself wanting to negotiate with Jesus, to insert some nuance, to create some breathing room. Maybe mostly slaves, like slavish. Maybe just most, the majority of your words, Jesus. How much sin is permissible? How close can I get? Can't we make peace? And it's true, the language in verse 34 carries with it this suggestion of practicing sin, continuing on, persisting in a state of sin. Jesus is not saying that our status through faith in Christ should be called into question every time we fall short of God's good and just purposes. Your status before God is secured through Jesus. It's not changed by your failures or lapses. To live that kind of way is the path to life under the law. It's not a free life. But to leave things there, I think, is pastorally and theologically inadequate. Pastorally, because there are in Scripture multiple warnings to the people of God, to the church, to us, to take sin seriously. To be, as Douglas was, extreme and impatient with its existence to make no peace with the sin in our lives. Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount about cutting off your hand, 
plucking out your eyes should they cause you to sin. Using hyperbole, Jesus is making this clear point. Take extreme measures to cut yourself off from sin. Smash your router, throw away your smartphone. Just kidding, but seriously. And this truth from Jesus seems especially important for people like us, who are perhaps quite at home in the world as it is, who perhaps have come from uptight, legalistic, straight-laced backgrounds. And the discovery of the depths of God's grace has been so liberating from fear and anxiety, right? All things are permitted, but not all things are profitable. We're traveling light, and that is good. But Jesus' warning, his exhortation, his command is take sin seriously. Give it no foothold in your life. Make no peace with it. Not because your salvation, your status before God is called into question. Not because God's grace is contingent, but because it will kill you. It will make you a slave. It will lead to the death of everything you love. And that then ties into the theological point I want to make. For Jesus here and in the perspective of the Bible, sin is not described in terms of conscious, voluntary acts, transgressing against known laws, right? As a child, you're like, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. But sin is not described that way in Scripture as singular, discrete acts. Rather, sin is described as this invasive, despotic complex almost. The church historian Richard Loveless describes the Bible's view of sin as an organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors deeply rooted in our alienation, our hatred from and of God. You see that hatred in Jesus' words. He said, you are trying to kill me. And the rest of John 8 bears that out. They are after him. An example of this idea of sin is found right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3, 7. As Cain is overcome by anger and jealousy at his brother Abel, God warns him, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you. That's not have you over for dinner. Sin is waiting to exploit you, to take hold of you, to consume you, to have you for dinner. That is not something to be dabbled in to take lightly, to make peace with. That's invasion of the body snatchers kind of language, right? Very old reference. <laughs> our water bill at the Coelho household has been high the last few months, while our, our water usage, our consumption, seems to be unchanged. And so we performed that common household experiment, you know, where you put the food dye in the tank of the toilet, and then you see if it comes out in the bowl, and that's the way you can tell if, like, the seal is imperfect, and in fact, you're losing water all the time. Just a little bit of red food coloring. But even just a few drops, right, color the entirety of the water. And sure enough, we have a couple of toilets with imperfect seals, so mystery solved. But when the food coloring was being applied, it was red. Like I said, some got on our white countertops and on our walls, even on the carpet. The person responsible shall remain nameless. But by the end, even their hands were stained red. That captures something of the scriptural understanding of sin, a complete pollutant that flows compulsively, automatically from a heart turned in on itself against God. 
And this idea of sin connects with Jesus' language about holding to or remaining in his teaching. Lower down in our passage, Jesus says to the crowd, you have no room for my word. It's the same construction we find in verse 31. My word doesn't remain in you, he's saying. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about this in a moment. In connection with the language of sin, this idea of sin as this foreign occupying, consuming power, Jesus seems to be saying that because of that, you have no room for my word, no ability to remain in my word because you are filled up, you are occupied by sin. You cannot remain in my teaching because you're held fast, you're held captive to sin. These are binary statements, zero sum realities. Sin will not remain in the tidy corner of your life, nor does it exist peaceably alongside the life of Jesus. The teachings of the word made flesh and the power of sin do not co-mingle. The bondage of sin or the freedom of the truth must prevail. I feel self-conscious about this. I feel like this has become a theme for me of late, but I feel its force for us as a community, as a people living in our cultural moment. There is a temptation toward a perspective that would see taking sin seriously as deficient or backwards as a product of a less enlightened perspective. But the reality is, is that Jesus, the writers of scripture, take it dead serious. And to live into the truth and life that Jesus has for us involves a certain moral seriousness about the pattern, the shape of our lives, about what it is that we make room for and what it is that we refuse. But what does that actually look like? What does it mean to take sin seriously? There's a bunch of things I could say, but the one I wanna focus on is perhaps counterintuitive. And it's that we wage war against sin through the practice of humility, through the practice of humble confession. Jesus' promise in verses 31 and 32 causes his hearers to protest. We've never been slaves to anyone, they say in verse 33. We're not spiritually inadequate, is what they're saying. Whatever else might be going on there, and it's a curious statement coming from the descendants of the slaves in Egypt, this statement suggests a lack of humility, a protective, insecure pride that leaves them unable with no room to receive what Jesus offers. Much like we've seen time and again, they miss the point that Jesus is making. In his book, Sin, and the subtitle is Overcoming the Ultimate Deadly Addiction. The original director of Laity Lodge, Keith Miller, points out that repression and denial are the primary symptoms of what he terms the sin disease. Denial, repression, and he goes on, the people who finally helped me to see the marks of the disease in my own life were those who were willing to reveal its evidence in theirs those who had the humility to confess and acknowledge. I suspect that if any of us have spent time in communities that took sin seriously, that involved an understanding that you never talk about sin, right? Taking sin seriously involved hiding your own, covering it up, acting as though your life was pure as the driven snow. But such a posture, such a response is the exact opposite of what it means to take it seriously. 
James 4 was the reading from yesterday's morning prayer. And it, in that chapter, the verse is, resist the devil, resist sin. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Sin is so serious that it must be acknowledged. The path toward freedom, the path toward holiness, taking sin seriously involves acknowledging the reality that it is a part of our lives, that we are marked by it, that we do, in fact, sin. Each week, we open with corporate confession. That gives you permission to acknowledge this. No one gets to be surprised that there are sinners among us. No one gets to fall on the fainting couch and say, I had no idea that you would sin. We all publicly declared it just a few minutes ago. Taking sin seriously involves taking such things out of the dark and into the light, exercising humility before one another. And in communities where we practice corporate confession, there's actually a danger in seeing corporate confession is like, I've done my duty. I've done what I was supposed to do. I acknowledged it. But I would invite you to consider what we do corporately in our weekly practice as more of an appetizer than as the dessert, as the beginnings of your practice of confession, the beginnings of your acknowledgement and your humble war against sin to be carried forth into everyday practices of your life. We have priests, people who are trained and equipped to receive confession, authorized by the church to pronounce the words of absolution, to say to you, you are free, you are forgiven. And we have a community here. One another, in the thickness of our shared life, we have the opportunity to bring it into the light. It is a likelihood, statistically, that some of us here are significantly disordered in the expression of our sexuality. We're caught in sin. Among us, there are those who are marked by sinful anger and greed. There are relational dynamics that we cannot change in and of ourselves. And I know there's a tendency for some communities, more pietistic, more individualistic, to focus on certain personal sins, and then other communities that focus on the social dynamics of sin. But to be faithful to the scripture, let's just acknowledge both the reality of sin in all its complexity, that we're enthralled to consumerism, that we are caught up and implicated in systems of injustice, racial and otherwise. And then we're slothful, we're prone to pride and to anger. To take these things seriously is to acknowledge them as a reality. And to acknowledge them is not to affirm or accept them. To acknowledge the ways that we are sinful, that we are marked by sin, to name it is in fact the beginnings of freedom. Most revivals in history, renewal movements in the church have involved profound conviction, pervasive conviction among the people of God around sin. Acknowledgement for the need that we all share for the freedom that Jesus alone can bring. And the saints of the church often in a mysterious way, point us to this, that their apprehension of the heights of God's love is somehow connected to a recognition of the depths of their own brokenness, their own disorder, their own sinfulness. Not as this oppressive thing, but as a life-giving, freeing thing, as a gentle truth. How is that possible? How is it possible to not be crushed by the recognition of how implicated, how marked by sin we are. That brings us to our second 
and final heading, in the House of Freedom. A few years ago, there was a traveling show that came here to Austin, associated with the website Post Secret. This website and the show involve people sending in anonymous postcards with their deepest confessions. Some of these are among the most private things you can imagine, related to traumatic, terrifying events and doings. Some of them are quite racy, just word of warning. Others of them are more everyday. My favorite was I sample makeup at Sephora with no intention of buying anything. <laughs> but they're completely anonymous. People send these confessions in, and there are 450,000 followers to the Instagram account. The phenomenon speaks to the cathartic power of confession. But I'd say with post-secret, in these confessions, the freedom on offer is very limited. There's something performative. There's something even voyeuristic. The power of it is limited, and it's connected to the fact that it's totally a horizontal experience. It's also anonymous. But to be free requires a power that we don't have in and of ourselves. It involves an authority, a permanence over and above us. Jesus makes, in, in verses 35 and 36, this very dense, short argument. He points out that slaves, while in ancient times part of the household, had no stability, no permanence. That ongoing instability is the nature of life in slavery to sin. But in contrast, he says, sons, daughters, children have permanent and unquestioned belonging. The leap Jesus then makes in verse 36 is that he himself is this son, the one who has the permanence and stability in the father. Therefore, he says, I have the authority, the power to make free those who are themselves slaves. It's on the basis of that promise that you and I can be ruthlessly humble with regard to the sin in our lives because our status is assured not on the basis of being sinless, of our works, our righteousness, but upon the basis of Jesus Christ, the permanent son of the father. In his power, we stand assured. We're granted the right to become the children of God. Whatever our sin, because of his sinless state, we have that status. And anyone, Anyone who puts their trust in him has been moved then out of the realm of slavery to sin and into the realm of freedom. A freedom that's not simply from sin, but a freedom for the good, the true, the beautiful, the pleasing and perfect will of God the Father. Not simply freedom in negative terms, right? From oppression, from a captive will, but freedom to and for what we most deeply long for, what you and I were made for. That is what is yours through faith in Jesus. That is why Jesus is so worthy of your adoration because he is able to put you at liberty like no one else can. And that is why then he implores us, implores his hearers, Hold to my teaching. Make room for this word that we would live as the free people we are. Our neighborhood groups are working through the Ten Commandments. And before the commandments begin, Exodus 20, verse 2, 
Yahweh reintroduces himself. He says, I am the Lord your God who took you out of slavery. He's reminding them, he's speaking of the relational context, but also the commandments can be read then as the same action of deliverance, the same liberating action as the Exodus itself is played out in the giving of the commandments, given that you and I, that the people of God would be free, live the free life Jesus has won for us. That's how you can understand Jesus' own teaching as instruction coming with the power to make you free, free to choose what is best, free to live the life that you long for, that you're made for. When you live according to Jesus' word, when you hold to his teaching, you are holding to what is true. And living in line with what is true is the path to freedom. You're free then in a way that you cannot be any other way. That is why Jesus implores us to hold to his teaching to make room for his word. And his exhortation seems to have both this idea of time, persisting through time, keep on holding to his teaching. Like we sang, when the sun comes up, set this song in our hearts as I come to the end. When my time is up, persist in his teaching. This is why his hearers in the text, the Jews who had believed, fall away. There's a fickleness. They don't hold to his teaching through time, but you and I are called to persevere, to persist in holding to the word of the word made flesh. And also this instruction has this like spatial idea, right? Put yourself in the realm of his word, in the orbit of his teaching. Make Jesus' description of reality, make the good news that he brings the orienting information of your life the fact of your life, your time, your home, and then you will be free on the path of freedom. Hold to the teachings of Jesus because in him you have a new residence. You've been taken from the sweatshop of sin, from the house of slavery, and set as a permanent and rightful resident in the house of God, the house of freedom, a daughter, and son, with true belonging. So live like it. Make war upon sin in your life. Humbly confess. Give your adoration to Jesus. And set his word at the very center of your being. Because then you are free. Free indeed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.